Happy Sabbath. Are we blessed this week? Amen. Well, things look amazing, don't they? Someone said this morning, uh, Pastor, you did a great job. I said, whatever you see that's not right, I probably did. We have an, am- an amazing team. And everything looks great, by the way. Just uh, an amazing team has put so much hours and time into this. And can we give them a hand just uh, to praise God for all of the hard work, creativity? Um, it's going to be an amazing week. We're just looking forward so much to being back to a normal VBS this year. Amen? And also just all the lives that will be changed of our kids and reached in our community. So we praise God for this opportunity. And uh, thank you for all those who put so many hours so far into making this happen. We appreciate that so much. We praise God for each one of you. This, uh, this past week, I was, I was thinking about how much different it is today when it comes to dating than it was when I, and that wasn't too awful long ago, was dating my wife. And I, rem- I remember I was 16 years old, so I guess it was a little while ago, um, when we first started dating. And I, I remember when we first met, it took me a while to call her on the phone, and I got the courage, called her up, and then we were talking for a little bit. Then she would come, and she was at Blue Mountain Academy. I was in public school about an hour away. And so she would come visit with some friends who live close by. And so we would hang out on the weekends once in a while when she was able to come on a home leave. And I remember this, would ha- was, this was happening for probably three or four months. And I remember we were at my cousin's house, and my cousin's just very forthright. <laughs> so we're sitting there. We've been talking for a while on the phone, seeing each other. And, and my cousin just blurts it out. She goes, so Brian and Miriam. She goes, are you guys dating or what? And I was like, I swallowed really hard. Uh, I don't know. Are, are we dating? And I looked at Miriam, and she's like, you tell me. <laughs> so I knew right then and there, she was waiting for something to happen. And so it was that following week I called her up. She went back to Blue Mountain Academy. And I said, you know, remember what my cousin said this past week? She goes, Yeah. I said, well, what do you think about that? She goes, what are you talking about? Well, you know, about us, you know, me and you, and I don't know why I couldn't just say it. So eventually she goes, yeah, so, so what are you trying to say? I said, well, would you like to be boyfriend and girlfriend officially? She's like, all right. And it was official. But you see, that's how simple it was back then. You kind of went from talking to dating. But today I've realized there's actually like eight or nine steps to actually get to where that point was. Have you, have, do you realize this? It's not so simple anymore. So, so basically now you kind of start out as friends. I'm going somewhere with this, don't worry. So you start out as kind of like maybe friends, you kind of acquaintances, and, and maybe you know each other on social media a little bit. But, but that doesn't really mean anything. Because after that point, if you have any spark of interest, then you're considered, if you've communicated, now you're what, you're, what we say is you're, you're talking. Now you're officially talking when you've communicated, maybe through Facebook, maybe through uh, Twitter, Instagram. Now, now you're just kind of talking. But nothing's official yet. Maybe you've met in a dating site or something, but it doesn't mean anything. But then we go from talking to what we call hanging out. So you may have gotten together, you may have gone out to, to see each other, do something together, but it's not a date yet. It's not a date, you're just hanging out. So you can't call it a date in this whole progression of things. So, so you're hanging out. Uh, you may have spent time, but it doesn't really mean much. But then after that, you might see each other as maybe a little bit more than friends, right? So you're like, okay, I'm a little more interested in this person. And so then you move to this new stage of more than friends. And now there's an interest, officially an interest of some kind. But your Facebook or your, your, your Instagram status hasn't changed. You're still single, right? So it's complicated. It's complicated. So, so you're still on the single stage, but you're, you're a little more interested. And then, get this, after this point, the next stage is that you're officially dating, right? But it doesn't mean what you think. Dating doesn't mean dating when I said, will you go out with me to Miriam? Now you're going out on dates, but you're still maybe dating other people. So you're not really dating, you're just kind of go out, going out on dates. Nothing's still official. This keeps going. And so, and so then you might be dating, but then you say, hey, I really like you. Like you're, th- things are growing here. 
So, so now can we do this thing, what we call being exclusive to each other? We're exclusive now. And, and here is where the question comes up with the, the DFR. This is where the defining the relationship question comes in. And so usually maybe the female says, so what are we? What are we? Are, are we a thing? Are we, are we something uh, special? There's no longer just casual dating here, no longer just, uh, just going out. Things are getting a little more serious. But then, get this, you don't even go to dating yet, officially. Now the next step is you're officially seeing each other, right? You're still not dating. Now you're just seeing each other. This person's now officially part of your life. Ghosting is now unacceptable. You can't ignore texts or phone calls. Uh-uh, you've got to get those. This is important. You, you've moved to a new level. But it's still not official. Because then, after that, if, you, if you're seeing each other and things are getting really really serious, then, and only then, would you officially become boyfriend and girlfriend. It's only at that point, now, that you can tell your friends and your family that you have a significant other. So all that, just to get to that point where I just did it in one fell swoop. It's complicated. You know, many times when we think about this idea of defining our relationships, we're reminded that God himself, Jesus Christ, has no issue with asking us, hey, what are we? Where do we stand? Who am I to you, and who are you to me? What's this all mean? Are we exclusive? Are we just talking? Are we friends? Are we serious? Is there, am I the only one, or the other, am I one among others in your life? Jesus has no problem asking those hard questions to us in our relationship with him. So as we spend some time today exploring what this looks like in the context of community, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that our walk with you is not as complicated as many, many times our walk with each other. But Lord, we thank you that you have initiated this relationship. And today as we explore the beauty, the power, and Father, the transformational dynamics of what it means to know you, to be part of your body. I pray that you would just guide us and direct us, give us wisdom and understanding, and transform us in the process, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So what does it mean to define the relationship with Jesus? What does, what does he ask us? You know, when, when I think about this, this whole idea of defining our relationship with Jesus, I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 4. If you'll turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I believe Paul is communicating what it means to define this relationship with Jesus. He's asking the, the question, where do we stand? What are we when it comes to us and Jesus in this chapter? Chapter 4, verse 1. So Paul says to the church of Ephesus, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Remember last time that I spoke with you, we talked about that the church are the ones who are called, but not just called, but we're also called to be apostles or apostolos, those who are called and sent. So he's talking about the calling, those who are called, those who are called out to be part of this body of Christ. With all lowliness and gentleness, verse 2, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. He's going through a description of what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus and part of the body. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, the Holy Spirit's activity, His power, His uniting powers and strength in our lives. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And so we see here that Paul is defining what it looks like to be walking with Jesus in the context of of community with other people who are also part of the body of Christ. He pulls no punches. You know, when we think about what it means and defining this relationship, I like to, to look at it in a couple of different ways. You know, right now is uh, the NBA playoffs. Some of you are paying attention to that. And I'm excited because the Sixers, which is my team, are doing okay this year. We're, we're in the playoffs. We just uh, finished the first uh, round and we did well. We were the number one seed in the East. And so, so when I think about a team, any basketball team, mine this year, 
I think there, there's two dynamics to a sports team, and we'll talk basketball right now. There is the team, those who are participating in the game, playing the game. There's a coach, obviously. But then there's this whole stadium or arena filled with who? It's the fans, right? And so when it comes to this idea of where we stand with God, how we relate to God, I think many times we kind of are in the same category, the same dynamics as a, sport, a sporting event. Number one, we may be on the team as a, as a follower, maybe on the court as the body of Christ doing the work, being part of the team that Jesus has called, those who have been called out. Or we may be in the crowd. We may be simply a fan. And so my question today is, are we a fan or a follower? We have to qualify what it means to be a follower because today, being a follower on social media is kind of like just being a fan, right? When you follow somebody, you're just a fan of them usually. You're commenting, you're, saying, you're putting likes, you're, you're just uh, watching all the videos. You may even be posting a video of yourself reacting to one of their videos as they're reacting to somebody else's video. And you're doing those three or four step things. But you're still just a fan. So what's the difference between a fan and a follower? A follower according to the Bible, according to this New Testament picture, is a disciple. It's a follower of Jesus, not just someone who follows as a fan, but it goes much deeper than that. A follower is somebody who's fully committed, sold out on what it means to be part of Christ's kingdom. So when we look at Christ's ministry, there is a difference. There are many people who are fans that follow Jesus, but yet there are also those who are followers. And Jesus, time and time again, was not afraid to ask the DFR to define the relationship, those questions that are tough. He goes, hey, where do we stand? What does this mean? What is this all about between us? He does it time and time again with his followers. He asks Nicodemus, where do we stand? He asks the rich young ruler, hey, he says, if you want to follow me, sell all that you have. And in doing so, he's saying, where do we stand Am I the only one or one, one among many in your life? Other stuff. In, John cha- in, um, in the book of John, chapter 6, verse 62, we see that Jesus, as he's preaching to the crowd, he has his followers, his disciples, a large group of followers were with him. And he says a hard saying. He says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no part with me. He was talking about an intimate relationship of consuming Jesus, of of being so intimately involved with him that we become one with him. But his disciples had a hard time with this saying. And so they say, this is a hard thing, we can't take it. And the Bible says that many from that point walked with him no more. They were fans of Jesus. They They would follow him as long as things seemed easy and good. They liked what he said. They liked what he did. But when it truly came down to to following him, when things were uncomfortable, they jumped ship. So a fan of Jesus is somebody who simply applauds him, likes him, maybe watches him, but does not truly follow him. Notice what the disciples say. Jesus looks at the 12 who are left after everyone else leaves, and he says, he says, are you two going to leave? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They believed that Jesus was the Christ. They said, there's nowhere else to go. We're simply not following you just because we like you or because we like what you say. We believe in who you are. You are the Christ. In you are the words of eternal life. The difficult part is when Jesus says to follow him. In Matthew 16, 24, he says this, and this is a tough saying. He says, if anyone would come and follow after me, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There is sacrifice involved in following Jesus. And to a mere fan who is just likes the the mantras or the sayings or, or just what Jesus said and what he did, it may be, uncomfortable because now it's calling for personal sacrifice and commitment. And so when we get to these points in our life when all of a sudden things aren't going well, when things seem to be at, at a loss, that the fans and the followers separate. 
Are we fans or followers of Jesus? What does it look like in the body of Christ? I believe in chapter 4, if we continue on, verse 7, we begin to see this picture unfolding of what Jesus is talking about. Verse 7 says this, and we're talking about what it means to be part of the body, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Verse 7 says, But to each one of us grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, and what does it mean? But he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Verse 11 says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. What's Paul talking about here? He's talking about what it means to be a follower of of Jesus. What it means to be a member of the body of Christ. Not just a fan, not just one who is following Jesus when things are going well and the team's doing good, but it's committed no matter what happens that we have faith and trust in Jesus to the good and the bad, to the valleys and the mountains. Because Jesus has eternal life. He's our Savior. He's our King. And so Paul is describing what it looks like within the body of Christ. How we view membership in the body will define the relationship. It will have a great bearing on that. To define the relationship with Jesus, we also have to define what we believe it is to be a member. Sometimes we mistakenly take membership to be in the context of how we view membership in our secular society. So, for instance, since I've been here in Florida for the past nine or ten years now, every single year I, I get the fun pass to Bush Gardens because it, I, I couldn't believe it. as a Florida resident for a cheap price, you go, you pay one fee, and you go all year long as many times as you want. You become a member or a, a pass holder of this amusement park. And it's unlimited. So you pay the fee, you go there, and you enjoy all the things the park has to offer. You know, many times when it comes to the body of Christ, we, we kind of view it and act the same way. We, we pay our dues, we, we do our thing, and we come here, and then we get to enjoy the benefits of being part of what happens inside the building or, or part of the services. And so many times we can view membership as simply a season pass holder. Many times also we, we view the church as maybe a field or a garden, and we believe that we are here to cultivate the field and just simply focus on here. Or maybe when Jesus is talking about the sea and, and going and reaching people, we think maybe this is the sea, the church is the sea. But he's not saying that. When he says that we are to go into the harvest, when he says we're to go out to the, the waters where the fish are, he's saying it's not the church. He's saying it is the world. And so it differentiates what it means to be a member and what the focus of the church is, as we've been saying for the past few weeks. The church is a force. It's not simply a a place. It's a force that goes into the world. It is sent. It makes a difference. It transforms the world because Jesus Christ is within the church. He is the head. And through his love and grace, lives are changed. So many times we continue as season pass holders, gardeners who are trying to keep fenced in this little garden we call church, or, or maybe this aquarium that we have that we've kind of put in here. We have all the little rocks and all the little things in here looking pretty, and, and so we, we want to be keepers of the aquarium and keep all the, the, the other stuff out. That's not what the picture of the church is in the Bible. We've been called. We've been called, but we've also been sent, as we said before. We've been called to be laborers in the harvest, fishers of men. We've been called to be a part of the body of Christ. You know, God already has equipped us for service. How do we know that? Because he just said that here in Ephesians chapter 4. He's already equipped his church to accomplish what he's called us to do. Verse 7 again, he says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. What is Christ's gift? 
It was the Holy Spirit. It was the gifts that he gives to the church to accomplish his mission. And then he ascends on high, it says here. And what's he say in relationship to the gift? It says in verse 10, it says, He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And then it says in relationship to this, that he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, I know when we look at these verses, we think about, okay, well, this is, these are the leaders of the church. These are the ones that God called to lead and to do the work of ministry. But the reality is actually that he's called each one of us. Notice what it says here in verse 7. But to each one, not just certain ones, as Pastor B said last week, there's not just exclusive people who've been called to the table. Everybody is called to the table. We all have a place. And even when it comes to ministry, to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so when he says that some have been called to be apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, what he's basically saying is that every single one of us have been called to these gifts. When we look at the spiritual gifts in the New Testament, each one of those gifts could fall into one of these different categories. When we look at these gifts, I love what Alan Hirsch says in his book, The Forgotten Ways. He, he defines this as APEST. And it's an acronym that, that defines it as apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. What's this mean? So when we look at these five different categories, we see that as a member of the body of Christ, God has gifted each one of us to have an emphasis or a gift, something to use for his kingdom's glory in one of these categories. So what's it mean? Just real quickly, the gift of apostleship is to extend the gospel as one who is sent. It's the individual who's always thinking about breaking down barriers, furthering the work, moving forward, visioning ahead. Maybe you can relate to that in your life and in, in, in your walk with God. And others have been called to be prophets. What's that mean? It's those who know God's will. They're attuned to his truth. They're attuned to his ways. And so this group of, of individuals, those who've been called the prophetic gift, not so much we think of visions, but those who discern God's will, they insist that the community obey what God has commanded. These are also individuals who, I say they, they have what we call cradar. It's those who can, can, can discern quickly those who are spiritually cray-cray. And sometimes there's those who are, who are just misinformed and they're, they're going the wrong path misinterpreting God's word. A prophet is somebody who can discern truth and lead the church of God and help direct according to the Spirit's gift. What's an evangelist? It's those who recruit. These are infectious communicators of the gospel message. They recruit others to the cause. It's those Matthews who invite others to the party, others to the table. Then there's the shepherds, the pastors, those who nurture and protect the caregivers of the community. They focus on protection, spiritual maturity, caring for the flock. That could be any one of us, by the way. And then there's teachers. These are those who understand and explain the communicators of God's truth and wisdom. They help others remain biblically grounded to better discern God's will. Every one of the spiritual gifts could fall into one of these. Each one of you here, each one of us, God is gifted with something in at least one or two of these categories to use for his kingdom's glory, to further his work. We look at the purpose of the gifts. It's interesting. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, he says he's given some to be prophets, apostles, some prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But what's the purpose? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ. These gifts have been given for equipping the saints, equipping each other, training, equipping each other for the work of what? Of ministry, for mission, and for the building up of the body, for the growth of the body. That is the mission of Jesus. That is the mission. As we go, as we are sent, the body grows. It is built up, not just from within, but from without. That is why God has called the church and by the way, every single gift is essential. Something happened, though, through the centuries. This whole idea has been lost. Because a couple hundred years into the church's history, 
the church became organized, it became the official state religion, it became an institutional church instead of a movement. And so the Bible says that all believers are priests. There's a priesthood of all believers. They're all ministers. That was the common belief and accepted practice of the early church. But then after a couple hundred years, the apostles die. It becomes the popular religion. It becomes an institution in society. And now they are, are paid clergy, those who've been hired, professional clergy, to do the work of ministry. So what happens? Because those are being paid to do the work of ministry, everybody else ceases to, to be part of the role of a minister. And so now it's only limited to a few. And even today, we see the results of that. That wasn't the original design of the church. God's design is that all have been given gifts. All have been given the ability and the power and the authority to minister. So instead of the priesthood of all believers, it became the priesthood for all believers. The priests are there to serve, to minister, to do all the work while everyone else is kind of there watching and benefiting. But that's not God's model. Each gift is essential. Notice when we think about just the idea of a team. Imagine if a basketball team everybody was playing in the same position. So there's five positions in basketball. Think about this. There's, there's the center, there's the power forward, the small forward, point guard, and shooting guard. But imagine if everybody was a center. I guarantee you'd win very few games in the NBA. Or if everybody was a point guard or everybody was a shooting guard, you didn't have all the positions being played because each one is essential. And just like that, it is the same with the body of Christ. Every single one is essential. It's interesting, when we look at this analogy, it's not just, I know I probably lost some of you because you don't like sports, it's all right. But, but think about this, maybe, maybe it's a road trip. Picture yourself on a road trip. And, and, and ladies, maybe you're on a road trip with your BFFs, your besties, and, and maybe you got some uh, yaya sister to the traveling pants thing going on, I don't know, you're, you're heading somewhere. Maybe Vegas, but by the way, you're not going to Vegas to, to do what some people do. You're there going to a women's ministry convention, okay? Let's just say that because we're in church, right? So, so you're, you're heading to a women's ministry convention. And you're there on this road trip. But picture yourself as, as these different elements of the body of Christ in this car traveling, ready to have an experience together. So, so just think about this. If you're, one of you is the apostle in the car, you're the one that has your foot on the accelerator. You're moving forward. You know where you want to go and you want to get there as quickly as possible. Many of you know somebody like this. I have relatives like this. They don't stop. They just keep going. If you have to go to the bathroom, it doesn't matter. You're going to hold it for hours. We're not stopping. Have you ever driven with somebody like that? That's the apostle. That's the apostle in the group. Or what if you're the, what if you're the prophet? That's the one that has the one foot in the brake. That's the one who's saying, oh, hold on. Slow down. The prophet is somebody who's, who's saying, wait a minute here. Let's, let's take a look at the map. Make sure we're on the right course. Make sure we're safe, doing the right thing here. And then you might have one of the five in your car who's the shepherd. And maybe, maybe this individual is the one who just wants to make sure everybody in the car is okay. You ever have something like that in the car? Do you have what you need? Are you comfortable? Is, is your seat back far enough? Do you have water? Are you thirsty? There's always someone in the car who's trying to just make sure everyone's okay. I have that in my family. <laughs> There's the shepherd. Do you need to stop and go to the bathroom? Even though the, prophets, uh, the, the apostle's not going to stop. They're asking, at least. Then there's the teacher. The teacher is there, and, and she, she wants to stop along the way and see all the sights and learn and ex explore and experience all the things around you on the way out to Vegas, the Grand Canyon, all these different things. There's all sorts of awesome things to see. And then she wants to teach you things about what you see out there. Oh, you know about this and that? Some, the, the teacher in the group. And then there's the evangelist. And she's the one who sees the hitchhiker by the side of the road who looks pretty shabby and saying, hey, maybe we need to give this, this person a ride. And everyone else is like, no way. No way. I, I like this analogy because it seems to fit the church better. Because when you think about it, you know that not everyone in this car is getting along. They are not all getting along in this car. When that person needs to go to the bathroom, the apostle isn't going to stop. He or she isn't going to want to stop when the prophet tries to put on the brake, or the teacher wants to stop and learn more or see a sight. And the apostle is driving so fast he didn't see the hitchhiker, and he probably hit him because he was in such a hurry. 
But if they were all shepherds and teachers, the car would probably be parked and be going nowhere. They'd be seeing all the sights. They'd be making sure everyone's okay and never going anywhere. Until you're comfortable, we're not going anywhere. We've got to make sure everyone's okay. And if they were all prophets, well, there's a pretty good chance that they might kill each other in the car because they're all pointing out what's right and what's wrong, and they can't agree. Let's face it. Other than the evangelist, no one wants to pick up the shabby hitchhiker who looks like nobody else in the car. So do you see how each one is necessary to balance the other out? That's why God created the church. That's why he's gifted each one of you specifically in a way to further his kingdom. Jesus has called you. Not just called you, but he's also sent you into this world. Every one of us has been given a gift. Whether we recognize it, whether we've discovered it or not, he's given you a gift to be used to his honor and glory for the building up of the church, for the furtherance of his work. So what does it mean to be part of the body of Christ? We need to define the relationship first. Who are we? What is this all about? Jesus asks us that question. Are we surrendered to him? Are we, are we for real with him? Is this a real thing or is it, are we just still friends? Are we still just kind of talking? Or are we committed to Jesus? Are we an active member in the body of Christ, recognizing the, the gifts, recognizing our calling to be active, not just within the church, but that we are called and we are sent? And by the way, it is sometimes a a scary thing to be chosen or called. Remember in recess when you're all lined up and you're playing something, there's always that scary thing that you might not get chosen <laughs> or you might be the last one or the next to the last one and it's humiliating. <laughs> it was always nerve-wracking. Who's teaming going to be on? Who's going to be chosen? Who's going to be first? Who's going to be last? And you know how the pecking order goes at recess when you're in school. But praise God, there's no pecking order in the, in the kingdom of Jesus. We're all one. We are all equal in his eyes. We're all called to be the same. Even though we have different roles, there is none greater than the other. We're all on an equal playing field in the kingdom of Jesus. I love what Pastor Alex said last week. We all are called to the table. All of us. Ephesians 4.13. We'll wrap it up here in just a moment. It says the gifts are given, these five gifts to the church, each one of us part of those gifts. It says what's the result? Not just equipping the saints for the ministry, for the building of the body. What's the result? It says till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, we'll add woman there, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What is the goal? What is the, what is the, the, the direction that God calls us to? It's right here. It's a unifying body. It's a unifying gift that causes us to be more like Jesus. That's the direction. That is the call. Not just to be a worker, but to be in the presence of Jesus, transformed into his image. Because we can be doing all the work, we can be doing all the activity and still miss all the point if we don't have Jesus, if we're not being transformed into his likeness. That word perfect there is sometimes misunderstood. We've misconstrued that in our body of faith many times to say, well, until the church is perfect, sinless, Jesus can't come back. But when Jesus talks about this term uh, perfect, when Paul's using it even, and Jesus uses it, it's the word teleos in Greek. It is not an end goal. It's not a, a spot where you've reached a certain end position, but it's a state of being. What does it mean? Jesus himself describes this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, when he talks about being forgiving to our enemies and loving our enemies. What does Jesus say? Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 48, he says, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect in forgiving our enemies and loving our enemies. But then he clarif we see this clarified in Luke chapter 6, verse 36. 
the parallel story of the same account where Jesus is, tr- is translated this way. So to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, Dr. Luke translates it this way and tells the story. He says, Jesus said, therefore be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So what does it mean to be perfect? It means to be mature. To be mature means to be like Jesus. And what does, be, what does it mean to be like Jesus? It means to be merciful and gracious and loving. And so when we grow perf- more perfect like Jesus, we grow more loving, more gracious, and more merciful as a church. That's the picture that Jesus portrays. That's the, Jesus, the picture Jesus communicates. He's called us not to be more sinless, but to be more loving. Because in being more loving, our lives will be transformed in the likeness of Jesus. As we stand in his presence, as we're transformed by his grace, we are changed. And also, love always comes in second. Love always comes in second. In Mark 9, 35, Jesus said, those who wish to be first will be last in my kingdom. Love always takes second place. It's always last. It always serves. It always puts others before itself. That's what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. This past, uh, past week, I, I came across something interesting. My son loves nature, and he, uh, he was sharing with me this, this uh, enigma in nature. It's, it's amazing. This, this thing called the immortal jellyfish. Have you ever heard of this thing? The immortal jellyfish. So, so jellyfish typically go through an amazing amount of stages from an egg that I never realized. They go from an egg to a larvae and then to a planula. They attach themselves to a surface like a rock, and then they become a polyp. And then they turn into a tube-shaped structure with a, a mouth and a foot. And then they might detach and become an actual jellyfish after all these five or six stages. Well, this one particular jellyfish, which is quite amazing, has a party trick that no other, no other animal or creature in the world has. You see, every other creature, including humans, we, we experience something called sentience, which means that, that our cellular structure breaks down over time and we eventually die when our cells can't reheal or, or re- repair themselves. But this jellyfish, when it's under threat or, or under, under duress of any kind, has the amazing ability to revert back to an earlier stage of life anytime it wants to. So it goes from a full-fledged jellyfish, get this, this is, this is crazy, and it can turn itself back into a little blob or a polyp. It's kind of like a frog turning itself back into a tadpole or a butterfly back into a caterpillar. Why does it do this? It does this to heal itself, to revert back, and to regain strength. And so in theory, this, this jellyfish could literally live forever. Unless something eats it. can keep regenerating itself, keep going back to its earlier stage to rejuvenate and to survive and to keep living on. Not as just an amazing thing in nature that I never knew before, but it reminds me of the body of Christ. As we look at the body, and we're told that the body of Christ, the church of God, as we near the end of time, may appear like it's going to fall apart. It may appear like it's, 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 digressing, and it's, it's just falling away. It's lost its strength. It's lost its vigor. But we're told that it's going it's to regain something to complete the work God's called us to do. But maybe the secret is found in the whole idea that this immortal jellyfish has discovered about itself. Maybe instead of a, a new trend or something that, that we feel like we have to adapt to, Maybe we've been missing it all along. Maybe God's calling us back to the stage of the church in its infancy when the church was spirit-filled, when the church was all about the members being the ministers, when everybody was part of the work. Maybe God's calling us back to the church in its infancy before we can see the change that God is going to do before he comes back. Maybe in order for us to see the power of the Holy Spirit, we must first 
become like children again as a church, depending on God, trusting in Him, full of His Holy Spirit. Maybe then and only then the church will arise and accomplish what God has called us to do, what He's called us to be. And by the way, the church itself is immortal, not that we are, but because Jesus is the head, the church will live forever. We may die here on this planet, but one day we'll be given life back. The church of Jesus Christ is eternal. And he's called us to be part of that church. And it doesn't always look pretty. Sometimes we don't always get along. That's not the case here at Spring Meadows because we love each other, right? We always get along. (laughs) Praise the Lord. But even when and if we don't, we know that Jesus is still the head. As we grow in Christ, we can grow together and gain doctrinal stability through open dialogue, through crucial conversations, becoming the peacemakers God's called us to be, not just here, but also to the world around us. He's called us. He's called each one of you. He's called me. All of the same thing, not just a few professional pastors to do the work. He's not called just the leaders of the church to do what the leaders we think they've been called to do. He's called all of us to be about his mission. That's every single person here today. And so the question is, Jesus is asking each one of us, what, what, what are we about? What's this all about? He, he's, he's having a reality check. He's having a, a, a defining the relationship moment with us today. Where do we stand? Who am I to you? Who are you to me? And he wants to be everything because you are everything to him already. He wants to be everything to you as well, if you allow him. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you today recognizing that we as the body, it's, it's made up of many parts. The body of Christ, even though Christ is the perfect head, that you're perfecting us in him. You're leading us, you're transforming us. You've called us, not because we are worthy, because Jesus is worthy. You've given us gifts through Jesus, through his sacrifice. Through his ministry in heaven right now, you've given us gifts to accomplish your work. You've called us out of the world, not to stay out of the world, not to be keepers of the aquarium or tenders of the garden. We've called us to be workers in the harvest, to be fishers of men, to go, to go where it's uncomfortable, to go where things might seem not the way we we think they should be, but to follow in Jesus' footsteps, to go where he went, to work with those and invite them to the table that may seem, according to our human eyes, that, that there's no way they have a place, but they do. We all do, and we're all sinners. We all need the grace of Jesus, and help us to recognize that. So, Lord, we pray that you would take this church, Spring Meadows, empower us, help us to re- recognize our calling, our gifts, each member here, to accomplish the work you've called us to in this community with each other, united in Christ, empowered by his spirit, moving forward together, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
would feel the Father's love. Oh, how you love us. From the homeless to the famous and in between. Oh, you formed us, you made us carefully. Cause in the end, we're all your children. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we contemplate your calling, you're asking each one of us today to define our relationship with you. Where do we stand? How do we view you? Are we just a fan or are we a follower? I pray that today, Lord, that each one of us would be a sold-out, committed, daily dying follower of Jesus daily taking up the cross of surrender, of sacrifice. Because that's what love is. Love is always sacrificial. It puts the other before us. It always serves. It always protects. And it always triumphs. And so, Lord, may that be a result and an outflow of our relationship with you. Lord, you've called this church to be sent to be a transformational element in this community, and we praise you for that. So, Lord, guide us as we leave this place, as your sent church, as those who are called to be world changers. I pray that we would just reveal the love of Jesus wherever we're at, that your kingdom would be established in and through us. Bless each one here. Bless our VBS this week as we will be reaching out to our community here as children are coming and and lives are being changed, we pray that Jesus would be glorified and that Jesus would be ingrained in the hearts of each person here. We thank you, Lord. Protect us. Bless us, we pray, this coming week. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week. We love you. We'll see you next week. And by the way, there is also a special prayer time in the front here. If you like a special prayer, we're going to have a few elders up here in the front of the the sanctuary um, that will pray with you. If you'd like or need special prayer, just come forward to the front.
and we will have someone here to pray for you. God bless.